Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we smoke weird and wonderful science through your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Lachlan Watmore puts steam to work, the day shortens, solar powers cars, the UK spied illegally and wood fires asthma. First up, here's news of Earth's inner core. The core turns. We used to think the core of the Earth moved with the Earth. Then, as we grew in understanding that the core of the Earth is liquid iron, we thought it rotated faster than the Earth turns. Super rotation. Researchers from the University of Southern California used data from nuclear bomb tests to find that the inner core has actually changed direction, and that this has changed the length of our days by tenths of seconds. Earth's inner core is separated from the mantle below the surface that we live on by the liquid iron outer core. We've worked out from close observations that it moves and changes over decades. The movement of the outer core is known to generate Earth's magnetic field that protects us from harmful radiation from space. While the evidence shows that the Earth's surface shifts compared to its inner core, as people have long thought, these latest observations show that the inner core spun slightly slower from 1969 to 1971 and then moved in the opposite direction from 1971 to 1974. As a result, the length of the day grew and shrank as the Earth's rotation was slowed and speeded up. Instead of the inner core super-rotating at about 1 degree per year, as we used to think, the researchers have found that the rate is closer to 0.1 degrees per year using data from the Large Aperture Seismic Array. Analyzing seismic data generated by underground nuclear bomb tests from 1969 to 1974 also showed the core had reversed direction, supporting the idea that changes in day length of about 0.2 seconds over six years are associated with movement of the inner core. The inner core is not fixed, it's moving under our feet and it seems to be going back and forth a couple of kilometres every six years. The paper was titled Seismological Observation of Earth's Oscillating Inner Core and was published in the journal Science Advances. Solar-powered cars at last! Dutch company Lightyear has premiered their production-ready solar-powered electric car, the Lightyear Zero. The four-door aerodynamic sedan comes with five square metres, or 54 square feet, of solar panels on the hood and roof, and can travel up to 70 kilometres a day without being plugged into a charger. The fully charged battery promises to allow you to drive 560 kilometres at 110 kilometres per hour on a freeway. For normal everyday driving, the worldwide harmonised light vehicle test procedure gives a range of 625 kilometres between charges. 
If your daily commute to work or school is under 50 kilometers, then you could run this car for months without ever plugging it into a charger. Sadly, the first production run of 946 cars will be outrageously expensive at over a quarter of a million dollars each. The company says that if they sell all of these, then they will produce a solar-powered car for the public for $32,000. Don't Tesla already have a niche on elite expensive electric cars? Why not start selling solar power cars to the budget-conscious public straight away? Apparently, engineers at Lightyear thought the same way, so they left and started Squad Mobility to sell solar-powered electric cars that are affordable for the general public. They've announced a tiny microcar for two people that would fit in with the European Union's light electric quadricycle category. This means the two doors are an optional extra, which you might miss in winter. The tiny car has a solar panel on the roof and its batteries come with handles for easy removal to be charged from the mains. So you don't have to rely on special charging stations like most electric cars. Perhaps this could also work as an anti-theft option, as a thief couldn't drive away an electric car without its batteries. The microcar measures just 2 metres long by 1.2 metres high. It's so compact that three of them would fit in a normal parking space. It's priced from around $7,000 as a basic unit to around $10,000 for the signature edition with all the luxuries, like doors. Squad will start selling the Squad car in the Netherlands and Europe in 2023, with options for leasing the cars for just $100 a month. Sadly, Australia doesn't allow electric quadricycles on the road, so the Squad Mobility microcars won't be driven here until that legislation is updated. UK government admits its guilt. The European Court of Human Rights has ruled that the United Kingdom government illegally spied and shared with the US government confidential journalistic material in the conversations between Julian Assange and his lawyer Jennifer Robinson, violating Jennifer Robinson's human rights. Exchanges between lawyers and their clients enjoy a special protected status under UK, EU and US law. Client-lawyer confidentiality remains a cornerstone of the English legal system. Amnesty International has called the UK government using surveillance data in court cases as gaining an unfair advantage akin to playing poker in a hall of mirrors. In 2015, the European Court of Human Rights set the precedent with its ruling in the case of Big Brother Watch and Others versus the United Kingdom, that government-intercepted material cannot be used by either the prosecution or the defence in order to preserve equality of arms in the combative court system. Jennifer Robinson chose to settle with the UK government for an undisclosed amount after the government made the admission of guilt. The Council of Bar and Law Societies of Europe representing over a million lawyers, has issued a letter to the UK Home Secretary Priti Patel. The council points out that the surveillance of Assange and his visitors equated to a serious breach of client-lawyer confidentiality, which denies Julian Assange access to justice in either a United Kingdom court or a United States court. The UK government has been covering up its illegal spying on Julian Assange by blocking a Spanish court's request for Julian Assange to testify by video conference in their case against the owner of UC Global, David Morales, 
for alleged offences involving violations of privacy and client-attorney privileges, as well as misappropriation, bribery, money laundering, and criminal possession of weapons. UC Global installed hidden streaming video cameras and microphones in the Ecuadorian embassy to spy on Julian Assange for the US and the UK. Proving that US intelligence services learned about Assange's defence strategy by spying on his lawyers could annul the extradition by questioning the illegal methods used by the US government to get Assange tried there, according to lawyers consulted by the Spanish newspaper El País. Santiago Pedraz, the judge at Spain's High Court, the Audiencia Nacional, sent a European Investigation Order, EIO, to the British justice system in 2019, requesting permission to question Julian Assange in a video conference from London as a witness in the case against the owner of UC Global, David Morales. The United Kingdom Central Authority denied the request to question Assange, arguing that video conferencing is not available to hear witness statements in the UK, despite the fact that witnesses have made video conference statements from the UK to Spain many times in the past. The UK also questioned the Spanish court's jurisdiction. The Spanish High Court judge replied, The Spanish judicial system has jurisdiction and is able to hear cases of crimes committed by Spanish citizens outside of the country as long as the event is a crime in the place where it was committed, the victim or the public prosecutor present a criminal complaint, and the suspect has not been sentenced or acquitted in another country. Justice de la Mata added that the suspect, David Morales, is Spanish. The victim, Assange, has filed a complaint, and the crimes, unlawful disclosure of secrets and bribery, are crimes in the UK. In the document, the judge highlighted that both crimes are being committed in Spanish territory because the microphones used to spy on Assange were bought in Spain and the information obtained was sent and uploaded to servers at UC Global's headquarters in Spain. Justice de la Mata recognised that these crimes were also partially committed in other countries, but said the requisites outlined in the law to assign jurisdiction to Spanish judicial bodies are fully met. More than 300 doctors for Assange, representing 35 countries, have told Priti Patel that approving the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States would be medically and ethically unacceptable. The doctors note in their letter, Predictably, Mr. Assange's health has since continued to deteriorate in your custody. In October 2021, Mr. Assange suffered a mini-stroke. This dramatic deterioration of Mr. Assange's health has not yet been considered in his extradition proceedings. The US assurances accepted by the High Court, therefore, which would form the basis of any extradition approval, are founded upon outdated medical information, rendering them obsolete. It's worth remembering here that Julian Assange suffered the mini-stroke while live on a video conference to the British High Court hearing from Belmarsh Prison. They knew the stroke happened, they saw it happen, and they chose not to recognise the event. The doctors conclude, Home Secretary, in making your decision as to extradition, do not make yourself, your government and your country complicit in the slow-motion execution of this award-winning journalist, arguably the foremost publisher of our time. Do not extradite Julian Assange, free him. The UK Home Secretary could make the extradition decision at any time. It's in her hands.
And finally, here's a word from Michelle Goldman, the CEO of Asthma Australia, about the dangers of suburban smoke from domestic wood fire heaters. Asthma Australia sought to undertake a national survey to understand the sentiment of the community in relation to wood fire heaters, and we found some very interesting things. So firstly, 75% of people, the majority, recognise that wood fire heater smoke can cause health impacts. Secondly, people didn't feel that they can protect themselves against it. And this number was even lower for people with asthma. And finally, three quarters of the community think wood fire heaters shouldn't be allowed in urban or built up areas. And once again, we found that these numbers were higher among people with asthma. Wood fire heater smoke is so problematic to health because it produces a range of toxic emissions, including really fine particulate matter. And these fine particles travel deep into our lungs where they can trigger symptoms and lead to serious asthma flare-ups. They cross into the bloodstream, they affect other organs in our body, and they can contribute to other serious diseases like heart disease and cancer. The nub of the issue is that unfortunately, people can't really take individual action to protect themselves if their neighbours and local community members are using wood heaters. You can close your doors and you can close your windows, but we know that these small particles can still make their way into Australian homes because they're typically leaky. You can use air purifiers with a HEPA filter to try and reduce indoor air pollution. However, they can be quite expensive to purchase and to run. So there are very limited ways to protect yourselves to minimise exposure from smoke, which is why we need a solution to phase them out. Asthma Australia would like to see a really well-considered plan to phase out wood fire heaters, especially in areas where the smoke is problematic. The ACT and Victoria already have a subsidy scheme to support those households who are keen to switch to cleaner, safer alternatives with the financial costs of doing so. We'd encourage these governments to promote the schemes more strongly to increase uptake, and we'd also encourage other states to follow their leadership and to adopt similar schemes. We'd like to see wood fire heaters removed from homes when they're sold and prohibited from being installed in new homes when they're built. Well, we know asthma can be seasonal and change with the months and seasons of the year. So Asthma Australia would strongly encourage people with asthma to see their doctor, to have their asthma reviewed, ensure you have an up-to-date written asthma action plan. So if you do experience symptoms, you know what to do. If you're prescribed a preventer medication, we really encourage you to take it regularly as directed to maximise the protection that the treatment can offer you. And finally, to keep your reliever medication on hand. So if you do experience symptoms, you're able to address them quickly. Well, Asthma Australia is here to help. So you can visit our website, asthma.org.au. We have a rich source of information available, tips, tools, strategies, or you can call one of our friendly educators on 1800 Asthma. Listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast 
over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Welcome to the world of tomorrow. You are about to take a journey out of this world into the world of the future. Forget the world around you. Forget the people around you. You are entering Futurama alone with your own thoughts. Someday when Papa photographs Junior, he may use a small TV camera and electronic photography. His full color or black and white pictures will be recorded on a home video tape recorder. You play them back immediately without any processing or development through his regular television set. What do you wear to answer the phone? What difference does it make? None today. But tomorrow, if video phone comes, as well it might, then the world has found itself another problem. In another field, music can now be produced entirely by electronics. No known instruments are involved. Coded information is punched out. An electronic music synthesizer does the rest. This is music with a strictly electronic beat. Until finally, only one obstacle remained, the human factor. From 2008. Time to put the kettle on. In the last instalment of our series on engines, we looked at the Ellie Pile, invented by Hero of Alexandria, which is regarded as the first steam engine, despite not actually doing any work. It would be some time before steam was finally put to work, but when it happened, it was just the beginning. Here's Lachlan Watmore with the Next Now series on the history of the engine. We've all heard the story of why Australia was colonised. Britain needed somewhere to send her convicts. So how did Britain end up with so many convicts that she ran out of room for them and had to send them to the other side of the world? The standard answer, at least when I was a boy, is that the Industrial Revolution had replaced many workers with machines and the workers turned to crime to feed themselves and their families. So some poor sod got transported to New South Wales for stealing a loaf of bread because, in very basic terms, a machine had taken his job. This is, of course, a simplistic view. I dare say the late, great Professor Manning Clark would have taken me to task on it. But even if just elements of it are accurate, it says a lot about the central role of machines in the Industrial Revolution. In the last instalment, I spoke about Hero of Alexandria, who invented the Ellipile, which was a steam-driven toy that spun round and round and probably made cool hissing sounds, but didn't actually perform work. However, steam wasn't really put to work until 1679, nearly 1700 years later, when a French physicist called Denis Papin invented a type of pressure cooker that blew its lid off when the pressure inside reached a certain value. 
Papin reasoned that if steam could push the lid off a container, it could push a piston in a closed cylinder. He was followed by an Englishman called Thomas Savory, who invented a vacuum pump by introducing steam into a closed vessel and then cooling the vessel to create a vacuum inside it. However, steam wasn't utilised in a piston-cylinder arrangement until another Englishman called Thomas Newcomen developed a more efficient steam pump consisting of a cylinder fitted with a piston, a design inspired by Papin's idea. When the cylinder was filled with steam, a counterweighted pump plunger moved the piston to the extreme upper end of the stroke. When the assembly was cooled, the steam condensed, creating a vacuum. The atmosphere pressure inside the mine acted on the piston and caused it to move down in the cylinder and the pump plunger was lifted by the resulting force. These innovations paved the way for the steam engine in a more efficient form. In 1765, the great Scottish inventor James Watt, whose name will be forever associated with the steam engine, improved it to such an extent that it could produce work in a cost-effective basis. Contrary to popular belief, Watt obviously didn't invent the steam engine. He did, however, modify a Newcomen engine by adding a separate condenser to make it unnecessary to heat and cool the cylinder with each stroke. Because the cylinder and piston remained at steam temperature while the engine was operating, fuel costs dropped by about 75%. This was the great innovation and the reason Watt is remembered. Watt entered into a partnership with Matthew Bolton, who owned a factory near Birmingham. At Bolton's insistence, he set out to develop a new kind of engine that rotated a shaft instead of providing simple up-and-down motion. He found a way to obtain an inflexible connection between piston and rod and invented special gear arrangements to convert up-and-down movement of the beam into rotary motion. A heavy flywheel was added to smooth out the variations in the force delivered to the engine shaft by the action of the piston in the cylinder. The flow of steam to the engine was regulated by a governor connected to the flywheel. In addition, Watt applied steam to both sides of the piston to produce greater uniformity of effort and increased power. Although far more difficult to build, Watt's rotative engine opened up an entirely new field of application. It enabled the steam engine to be used to operate rotary machines in factories and cotton mills. The rotative engine was widely adopted. It is estimated that by 1800, Watt and Bolton had built 500 engines. Although Watt understood the advantages of utilising the expansive power of steam within a cylinder, he refused to use steam under high pressure for reasons of safety. This limited the application of steam engines. By the early years of the 19th century, the American inventor Oliver Evans had built a stationary high-pressure steam engine for driving a rotary crusher to produce pulverised limestone for agricultural use. Within a few years, Evans had designed lighter-weight, high-pressure steam engines that could do various other tasks, such as drive sawmills, sow grain and power a dredge. From 1806 to about 1816, he produced more than 100 steam engines that were employed with screw presses for processing paper, cotton and tobacco. Then in 1803, the steam engine was put to its most famous task when the Englishman Richard Trevithick built the world's first steam-powered railway locomotive in 1803. 
Two years later, he adapted his high-pressure steam engine to drive an iron-rolling mill and to propel a barge with the help of paddle wheels. Watt's engine was able to convert only a little more than 2% of the thermal energy in steam to work. The improvements introduced by Evans, Trefethick and others increased the efficiency of the steam engine to roughly 17% by 1900. Yet within the next decade, the steam engine was supplanted for various important applications by the more efficient steam turbine. Owing to technological advances and the use of high-pressure steam, steam turbines have attained an efficiency of thermal energy conversion of approximately 40%, paving the way for the internal combustion engine. That was Lachlan Watmore talking about the history of steam power. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.